Hello, I'm Dr. Lisa Belial, and you are listening to or watching Radio Maine. Today we have with us in the studio, artist Julie Hauk. Thanks for coming in today. It's nice to be here. You've brought with you a lovely piece that is very autumnal in, yes, uh, it in is. color tone, which of course we are recording this in the autumn, so it fits the season. Tell me about this piece. Well, this is one of those landscapes that you see all over Maine at this time of year, you know, a field or marshy scene and, you know, the clouds and the light and um, everything, the colors in this painting um, reflect what happens to the fields, especially around the marshlands. They all turn into these colors of sepia and ochre. And um, I'm very captivated by that palette. And so to me, this is the time of year that it's the most beautiful. And so, of course, hillsides and, and trees are always, you know, they're always a part of this sort of landscape. So um, this, is, this scene is inspired by that. And it's not at any particular place in general, but it's a compilation of many places I've seen. And when I work on a painting like this, it's usually from studies and places I have seen where I have references. And then in the studio where this was painted, then I kind of put something together that works for the painting and also the actual scene I want to represent. There's also um, this lightness uh, with the clouds and the, I don't know if it's fading light, I think, um, at the top of the piece. And it contrasts with the green um, that's still in the field, at the bottom of the field, at the bottom of the piece. It's very much kind of a evidence of this transition you're describing that we're, we're changing the time of day, we're changing the time of season. Is that something that you incorporate into your pieces a lot? It wasn't an obvious metaphor, but it, it is a beautiful metaphor for what's happening in this painting. And in my landscapes are always inspired by light. And you'll also see um, a lot of clouds, a lot of something happening in the sky. So this back, this is a backlit scene. So you see the rim light and you see the light coming from behind the clouds and then also spilling over. I've got the halation on the back of the, the trees and is sort of giving you that feeling of the light moving across the field. So it's the directionality of the light in the painting that creates that effect and knowing where to put your light <laughs> and knowing that what's in the sky affects what's below and what's around it is how this painting is actually working. So the light is, and if you have to look at here, you know that the sun is somewhere behind that cloud over there. Okay. What's the name of this piece for those of us who are, who are listening to the podcast and like to look it up on the website? For it's Across the Marsh. Across the Marsh. So people who are listening to this podcast and yes. would like to look it up on the Portland Art Gallery website. Yes, that is they where they will find it there. Yes. Across the Marsh. You do a fair amount of cycling. Yes, I do. By marshes, I'm assuming. Well, here, yes. <laughs> a lot of marshes, a lot of rolling hills. I live in Cumberland, so there's great biking out there. When you are out, are you consciously thinking about this might be a nice scene to paint? Are you just kind of letting things flow by as you're going and kind of subconsciously imprinting these images. How, is, how does this work for you? Well, I used to be a professional photographer. So when I'm cycling, I actually do do that. I'll see a scene and I'll take a mental picture. I'll go kind of like a triple like visual like record and I'll remember it. And then I'll have these favorite scenes that I remember and I got my favorite routes. 
And what I often do is when I go back to home, I will commit a sketch in the studio to something that I've seen or something that happened in the sky. Or I have an iPhone with me always. I might get a reference photo from something and say, I like the movement in the sky or I like that directionality or I like that scene. And that's a reference. So I can also go back and do a study in the field of something that I really want to study more in depth. But that photographic memory is really invaluable. So it's a conscious process, and it's kind of a win-win <laughs> be on the bike and doing research for my art at the same time. How did you transition from being a photographer to painting? Well, um, originally I was going to art school at night and working in a photo studio during the day. This was back in Boston, and that was my day job. And it got to the point where it was such an intense schedule that I had to decide where I wanted to put my energy. So I dropped out of art school to focus on the photography. And of course, this was back in the 80s. And that, you know, that was all about the money and the this and the that. And everybody said, there's no money in art. Well, it's the time I made the decision to go into photography. So I did that for 17 years professionally. I was a location photographer, again, which has fed into my work with um, landscapes. But I started breaking away from that, and um, it was a very stressful and intense ca- career. I was always on airplanes. I was flying all the time. I mean, it sounded glamorous, but it was really hard after almost 20 years of doing it, sitting on airplanes all the time. And, you know, you get to Paris, and you go right to the job site, and you haven't slept all night, and... You know, I just had, and photography started changing into a different format. And no one was shooting film anymore, and they were shooting digital. So I then redirected my life, and then I returned to art. So I re- retired from professional photography, and I went back to art school. And I studied in Academy of Art in San Francisco, studied in private ateliers. I wanted to learn about light, so I went to a classical atelier in France. So I revisited that career in my mid-40s, and now here we are. I'm interested in so many things you just said. Okay. So, But I'm going to start with this idea of being a location photographer. For those of us who don't just know. don't know, like me, okay. tell me what that means. Well, it means that instead of shooting a, a site in the studio, like you know, a still life or a setup or a food shot or a model, I'm out in the field, and I worked for corporations, and did any reports, I did um, a lot of work for editorial publications like Business Week, Newsweek, Forbes, New Year's, U.S. News, and I did a lot of executive corporate portraiture. I shot a lot of high-level executives over the years, and um, I was always flying. We went doing something in the field. So you'd go out into a location, you'd go to a corporation, or you'd go to a clean room for a biotech company, or you'd go to a manufacturing plant. So you were doing the shot outside somewhere in another environment. So then the corporation would take the work that you produced and use it probably more internally for themselves. Um, No, they were for promotional marketing materials like annual reports. Back in the days when they used to print annual reports, they were big marketing materials, corporate collateral. Um, The editorial was always, you know, the magazines, so it would be an article, and I would be illustrating an article. And my, since I did so much corporate work, I was usually working for the business magazines. Okay. 
So I didn't do fashion photography. I didn't do food photography. I did people. My specialty was people and location. So, so if you if your specialty was people and location, how has the people element um, is is that in any way incorporated into the work that you do? Not really. I don't do figurative work. I'm sort of drawn to the natural landscape. In fact, when I was in art school, we had to do you know the models and the figurative studies and the still life. But at, when we were done, I went out in the field and I I painted the landscape. And I was just drawn to what was happening in the natural world rather than what was in the inanimate world. So you learned how to, um, you learned the skills you needed to be a good photographer and do the portrait work, but it really wasn't something that spoke to you, it sounds like. I was really good at it, and... Technically, I was excellent at it, and it was good. And I had a good rapport with people, and you know, they'd always send me in to shoot the CFO because I could always get them to relax, right? <laughs> and so um, that was also an interesting thing about being a photographer at that time because there were no women in photography. It was a male-dominated field. So they'd send me in, and they would think that I was the marketing person and my assistant, who was often a male, was the photographer, and we'd have to re-educate them. But then they were so they were always I could always get them to relax at that point, you know. So the people skills I think were in place, and I enjoyed it. But I really felt that moving back to art was what was in my heart, and because it became where you're only doing it for the money, and not doing it because it was really coming from something inside you. Whereas the art definitely comes from something deep in me that I really love. Was there a moment that you were, say, on a plane or on location or doing a portrait shoot where you just thought, okay, I think I'm done with this part of my life. And I, and I, I think I, I have now made this decision that I want to go back to art school and pick up where I left off. Definitely. And I remember there was a shoot that I was doing for a company called Millennium in Boston and Cambridge. And it was one of those days where the art director kept changing his mind. And we'd set the whole room up, and we'd, and that's back in the days when you did Polaroids to show people what things looked like. So he was shooting a Polaroid, letting him see what it looked like, and he, then he ended up having us relight the room like five times in order to decide what he wanted. And you know what he decided to do? back to the first one that we did. And I came out of that just like so burned out. (laughs) And I went home and I just had this sort of heart to heart with myself. And I just said, you know, this is not what I want to be doing. And so we had an attic room upstairs. And so I went upstairs and I got a bunch of art materials and I started just painting and drawing up there. So interestingly enough, my first work that I did was figurative. And um, so I was all out of my head, and they were dancers. And I still have a lot of that early work. And I think what I was painting was the joy inside me at that time, the dance of my spirit. Do you think that the landscape work that you do now somehow continues to reflect that joy? Absolutely. Um, you know, it, nature is infinite. It's always changing. 
You know, I could go back to a scene and every day it's different. Um, the composition and the skills that I learned as a photographer have helped me in terms of being able to assess a situation very quickly, compositionally wise. The school and the art, tra art training school in terms of taught me how to do light on form, which you'll see in all my paintings. And that to me is, it's transformative. What is your connection to Maine? I, I know that you have a Hawaii connection. You talked about living in Boston. Where, where did Maine come in for you? I used to live in Maine, actually in Portland, back in the 90s. I lived here for three years. And um, it was back before it's, just before it started changing. I remember when Street & Company was like the first restaurant that started the whole food scene, and it was like a major event. And so um, I was up here. My husband and I were moved out of Boston to be in Maine. He was originally from Maine. They had a camp on Thompson Lake, which we spent a lot of time there. So we moved to Portland. And then it, what happened was there was the crash recession of the early 90s. Everything became very challenging. We decided to move back to Boston because I was on the road a lot for my photography and driving back and forth to Boston to shoot for clients. And it was just too much. So we'd moved back to the Boston area. So when I then moved to Hawaii and I wanted to move my artwork forward, this was fast forward like 20 years, I wanted to get my work on the mainland and I wanted, you know, I wanted to sort of grow my business and grow my market. So I knew that I needed a place on the mainland in order to come to. So I went to a lot of different cities, checking things out. And so I ended up doing a retreat up in South Thomaston one summer. And I also taught a workshop up there. And when I was there, the lights went off, the bells and whistles, it was like, this is it. And so then what happened was I, ascended, I saw a magazine, Maine Home and Design, on the table of where I was renting. And I went, oh, this is nice. And I saw Portland Art Gallery. And I went, oh, this is nice. And so I sent a query email. And they interviewed me. And uh, then I was with the gallery. So um, that was back in 2016. And so here we are. I ended up buying a place in Maine where I spent a good part of the year, go back to Hawaii in the winter. So that's, that's the story of how I ended up here. Just everything, I followed the signposts. <laughs> I said, this is the place. So what signposts then brought you out to Hawaii originally? So I had been out to Hawaii for a photographic assignment work. I was hired by a design firm in Honolulu to photograph for Continental Micronesia Airlines, who's no longer with us, to go to Micronesia and photograph all the islands for their in-flight magazines and for some corporate collateral. So I went out to Honolulu and loved it. Went to Micronesia. Of course, this was in the dead of winter in Boston, so it was like it was it was the perfect solution to January, right? So, I was in Micronesia for three weeks, photographing a shot list of different places that they wanted me to shoot. Came back to Honolulu, and then I had to stay two weeks to edit the film and deliver the job. <laughs> 
because that was back when you shot film and all those slides had to be gone through. Of course, I, you know, it was on Polynesian time, so I took my time. You know, I was no rush to come back to Boston. So I ended up um, making a major lifestyle change in about the next year, and I took two months off in the middle of annual port season and went to house sit for a friend out in Honolulu and gave myself a, a chance to step back and that was the when I made the decision to move forward with it with a, with a big change. And so the, in that fall, I moved out to Hawaii. I had had two friends that had gone through other transitions that were from Boston, and they had moved out to Hawaii. And it seemed like this is this felt right. So I did, and I moved with my cat, two cats, and my horse. I flew my horse. I was a dressage rider. I flew my horse to Hawaii. Sold all the furniture, and everybody said, sell the horse, don't sell the furniture. And I said, no, I'm going to take the animals. <laughs> I don't care about the furniture. So I actually, yeah, I flew all, them all out to Hawaii, and I continued riding, and of course, you know, um, started very slowly working my way up to making, um, you know, went, learning about the art community in Hawaii. And um, then I ended up leaving Hawaii and going back to art school. So, and then returning to Hawaii. How does one fly a horse to Hawaii? Well, you first you have to transport it across country in special. There are special companies and vans that do this and move animals around, especially large animals. So I moved. We were shipped out to the L.A. area. Then you spend a week on a, a ranch or some facility that sort of is a place where people are shipping animals. Because horses are shipped all over the world for various reasons, as are dogs and cats. And then I ended up flying him on a special transport that only flew animals. So they had pigs, they had sheep, they had horses, they had dogs and cats. And so he flew over on a, on a special plane. There was a vet on board. He had a stall, the whole thing. So I met him at 3 in the morning at the Honolulu airport when, as he came off the plane. Rearing, by the way. Rearing. Rearing. Rearing at the top of the, of, the, of, the, of the doorway to the plane. He wouldn't come down the ramp. So he was probably just a little tired of all these transitions himself. He was a little fed up. And then his mom stepped in, and the, the, the poor handler was, like, terrified because he was a 17-hand thoroughbred. And um, I went in there, and I grabbed the lead, and I just said, she said, oh, there's mom, thank God. Feet on the ground, walked down like a little lamb. It's like, you know, it's like mother is here. So, um, and I had Rio for another five years, and I ended up selling him because I was moving over to um, France to study art. And so a friend of mine purchased him, and you know, it's, he went on to do his thing, and I went on to do my thing. That's, that's interesting that you had such a close relationship with him that it was important that he come with you to this next stage of your life. It was. And so were my cats. I brought the cats. The cats have transitioned on, but there's now a new cat. Um, they, they, at the time, it was like the living things in my life made were, had more meaning to me than the... It, material things. In fact, when I moved to Hawaii, I lived in Honolulu for a year with a friend. We shared an apartment. Then I moved over to Maui. And when I lived in Maui, I was sitting there looking for a place to rent. And I was over there um, looking 
And I saw this ad in the local paper, artist studio loft retreat for rent, $650 a month. And I went, oh, I'm going to follow, I'm going to go out and look at it. Well, it turned out to be a yurt. (laughs) It was a yurt on stilts. It was out in a part of Maui called Keakea. It was 3,500 feet up the mountain. It had an outdoor bathroom and an outdoor shower. It had a kitchen, no heat, and it had a 180-degree view of the valley and the West Maui and the oceans. And so that was where I, I rented that for like three years and lived there. And it was as far away as that Boston material lifestyle that I was in took me right down to the very simple part of living. And, you know, I'd hear the cattle in the morning. I'd hear birds. I would hear the wind. It was sort of, I was very close to the ground. It was very important at that time to sort of be in that space with myself. And then, of course, I was surrounded by landscape (laughs) and nature. And my horse was in the field across the street. I had a friend that lived two fields over, had a big dressage arena. We used to ride our horses right up the mountain. And, um, you know, it was, a, it was a, a good place to land and sort of gather myself. Did you grow up in the Boston area? No, I grew up in the Midwest. Well, now I just feel like all these layers, Julie. I mean, I, I should say, for those of you who are watching, I've known Julie for a little while. I've actually written about her previously and for a, another publication, not the ones that she's mentioned. But now I'm just hearing all these different iterations of Julie. So, so where did you grow up? Well, I was born in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And then um, we moved quite a bit. My father was in sales, and so we lived in Minneapolis. I've lived in Buffalo, moved back to Ann Arbor, lived in Salt Lake City, ended up back in Indianapolis where I went to high school. Went to college in Bloomington at IU. And um, my cycling avocation started, or uh, inspiration started when I was four years old, where I got on my tricycle and rode down. We lived in Minneapolis at the time, and I rode away from the house, and I went down. We lived in Lake of the Isles. I started riding around the lake. I was just like happy as a clam. And the sun started to set, and I just could care less. I just kept riding. And so these people found me. I remember getting in their car, which, of course, these days would be like parents would be terrified, because they thought, what is this four-year-old doing on a tricycle when the sun is setting, riding around the lake. And so they put me in their car, and I showed them where my home was. My mother was, of course, horrified. But I've been on the road ever since, okay, <laughs> in a sense, you know, in terms of travel and that, I think, the biking and also the um, wanting to explore new worlds was part of my even getting into photography. So definitely a Midwestern girl, cornfield tractors, pigs. I mean, this is also interesting to me because I, I have a, I come from a large family. One of our, my younger brothers uh, actually did the same thing. He got on a little, um, we used to call it his broom broom car. He would get on his little plastic broom broom car and ride around the street. And he rode up several roads away and people kind of picked him up and, Brought him, and then you happen to know my family, and we come from a big family. Brought him back to our family, and um, and this brother also, I think, continues to 
have and has always had this like sort of internal drive to be on the move. So it's interesting to hear that you had this at the age of four and you kind of even knew this about yourself. But did you also know that you wanted to um, engage in art? Well, this is a very interesting question to answer because when I was in grade school, I loved art. And the art station was one of those stations that you got to go to if you did all your little coursework, you know. So I would do all my little English or reading assignment, whatever it was, and I would want to go over to the art station where they had the easels and the temper paint. And um, I just loved it. But my art classes in grade school and were always, I always got C's in art. And um, the teacher, remember the comment on my, this is back when report cards had written comments, was Julie always paints things the wrong color. Because back then art was, this is the example the teacher is giving you and you have to do it exactly like. So I remember painting things with purple horses and uh, you know all these orange skies. And of course that wasn't realistic, but to me it was, I was seeing things differently from a very early age. So I never thought I was good at art, and I grew up thinking I wasn't good at it. And so I didn't really pursue art until much later. And I remember in college, because I had a degree in social psychology and education, taking art classes, and just loving my art history classes. I loved everything to do with the art classes we had to take. I, you know, just aced them. It was always felt that I was in my element. But I didn't feel that I was good at it necessarily. I trust that inner sense of, um, that inner voice enough to follow it until much later in life. So there are many interesting things about what you just told me. Um, not the least of which is that art is somehow something that is done kind of as dessert. The main course is the real topics, the real subjects. But if you get your real work done, then you can do art for your classes. But also this idea that if you need, if you're going to do art, you need to do it in a way that we tell you to, because that's that's the way art is done. You cannot paint purple horses and cows. Um, but but perhaps the most interesting thing for me, I think, is that despite this, I mean, you kind of still agreed to let these people influence your perception of yourself as an artist. Okay, well, I guess I'm not good at art, but you still did anyway. That you still had you still had the internal wherewithal to kind of dig deep and say, but I I still really like this. I still really want to do this. And not only did you become a photographer, but you came back around right. to being an actual a different a, a painter. I did. And I mean, you have to understand that, that when I was in grade school, that this was the, the, the days when we all did duck and cover, okay? <laughs> we all stood in lines. Our ducks were all in little rows. Um, you had to raise your hand. I mean, there was the boys' line and the girls' line. There was, like, safety patrols. We had to line up, and everything was, like, in rows. Everything. We were very—this was how things were structured, and that's how education was structured back then, and that was— it's made a lot of changes now in terms of the fluidity of the classroom and the autonomy the children have in their learning. However, that was the time and that was the context of which I grew up. So, of course, again, the same situation with being in art school and being a young photographer working in a studio, 
um, the photography took over. It was the 80s, okay? It was a time, you know, and I'm saying it was all about the money back then, all right? So I gave up art school, even though I, I loved it, because I said, well, I've got to make a living. I mean, I was working weekends at Anthony's Pier 4 in Boston wearing a little pilgrim outfit serving lobsters to tourists, right? I really wanted to not be doing that the rest of my life, right? I'd been an elementary school teacher for four years, and I didn't want to do that anymore. So I realized, you know, getting into photography was my first, you know, entrance in. Um, I was when I was a, when I was a teacher. This is another layer you're going to want to know about. I, I did teach overseas in Rome for a few years. It's an international school, and of course, if you live in Rome you, and you're in your twenties, you have an Italian boyfriend. So the Italian boyfriend was a photographer. So he put me a camera in my hand, and I used to go out on shoots with him. And he bought me my first camera, which was a hot Miranda camera. He bought it in a piazza in Rome for me. He had two lenses, a 50 and a 35. And I started taking photographs. So that was how I ended up moving into photography. It was like a first segue into art. And, but you could also make a living at it. So you've had this very, simultaneously, this very practical side, um, make a living, follow the rules, do what I'm supposed to do, but kind of secretly, like, you know, thinking about joyful ballerinas and light in the sky and kind of getting back to that original four-year-old on the bike, like out in the world, doing what you, what you really want to do. Yes. Following your dreams. And do you feel like you now have landed in a place that feels good to you? I do. I feel that everything in my life is working in, um, in concert. And um, what I really believe, the, re the reason why that's happening is because I have stopped listening, listening to the logical side of my brain as much as I'm listening more to that intuitive side of what feels right, what resonates, following your heart. Not being, not being without discernment, um, but I'm saying that following that inner guidance system and trusting that enough to follow it and live it. And I have to say that I am. Well, I am very happy that you are doing that because clearly um, you are creating beautiful pieces that we have enjoyed. We actually have one in our house, I think you know. I know. Which we find, which I find just lovely to look at. So I appreciate the opportunity to have enjoyed your art over the years, to get to know you a little bit and to get to know you a little bit better today. Thank you, Lisa. I've been speaking with artist Julie Hauk. You can see her art at the Portland Art Gallery or on the Portland Art Gallery website. And um, I encourage you to get to know a little bit more about her. She's a, just like her art, she's a many-layered individual, and um, the layers are quite wonderful to understand more about. So thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me.